four in your Bibles this morning as our young people are being dismissed to Children's Church with Mr. Paul and Mr. Luke. Philippians chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse number 4, down to verse number 7. Philippians 4, verse number 4, from prison, never forget that when you read the book of Philippians, Paul was in prison when he wrote it. From prison, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. That's the idea of the Lord is near. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. The idea is the peace of God, which is better than understanding. Have you ever found there are things that you didn't understand? But even in the midst of those things you don't understand, God's peace is of such a nature we can still have it. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that second sentence in verse number five, the Lord is at hand. And I would like to preach a message this morning entitled, The Lord is at Hand, or The Lord is Near. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. I pray that you would challenge our hearts this morning. I pray that you would stabilize hearts that are maybe experiencing some worry, some anxiety. I pray that you would cheer hearts that have been dealing with some emotional sadness. I pray, God, that you would strengthen hearts that are maybe wrestling with some weakness, maybe in the area of a struggle with sin. Lord, I pray that you would convict hearts where there's maybe not unity with a fellow believer like there should be. And Lord, that we would understand that the greatest motivating truth for being right in each of these areas is the fact that you are near. You're here, you're present, and I praise you for that. And so strengthen us through your word this day, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The first time my dad ever went hunting, he was about 10 years old. He went with an older cousin who was in his late teens to early 20s. They trounced into the woods while it was still dark, and my dad grew up with a phobia of the dark. And yet he testified because of being in the company of that older cousin, he wasn't scared. He walked into the woods at dark uh, to do some deer hunting out there in northeast Missouri. He said, we sat down, we got comfortable uh, in their stand or wherever they were. I think they were leaning against a tree maybe, uh, going to hunt at ground level. And he said, we were, he said, I was perfectly calm because of being with my older cousin. And he said, and all of a sudden, a bobcat screamed in the dark. How many of you have ever heard a bobcat scream before? A bobcat screamed in the dark, and we've recently had one in our neighborhood and heard it scream. And Dad said, all of a sudden, the cousin said, let's get out of here. (laughs) And all of his calm, all of his security evaporated because the one in whose presence he was relying also was shaken. 
I want you to understand this morning that the bobcat screams of Vladimir Putin do not rattle the Heavenly Father. Okay. The bobcat screams of a struggling economy do not upset the economy of heaven. Okay. The bobcat screams of whatever you want to put in there, some circumstance beyond your control, they do not rattle the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of those, we can have perfect calm. When Paul says here, the Lord is at hand, it is the idea in some passages of Scripture that the Lord is at hand in the sense of time. In other words, He could come at any moment, and that is true. And that's something that Paul ends chapter 3 with. Notice, if you would, chapter 3, verse number 20 and 21, for our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like into His glorious body. So we're to be looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We as Bible believers understand clearly that the Bible teaches what we call the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could come at any time. And we need to be ready. And so that is implied here. But I believe more in the context... Paul is referring to the fact that the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near in the sense of space. And that speaks of his being right at hand in his person. It is a great comfort to the heart of God's people to know that Jesus is near. He is present. The Lord is at hand. He could come at any time, but in the meantime, isn't it good to know he's right here? I've been reading a book on the Psalms this past week or two, and the author set forth an interesting idea. And he noted how in the Old Testament, though there is some general and scattered information given about heaven and about hell, both as real places, by the way, okay, that the majority of information about the places of heaven and hell is reserved to be given in the New Testament. And he made an interesting point as he wrote on the Psalms that the focus of believers in the Old Testament was not predominantly on heaven as a place, but the focus of believers in the Old Testament was on the presence of the person of God. I think there's a sense in which believers in our time, New Testament era, can become mercenary in our love for heaven and overlook the importance of the daily presence of God. You say, what do you mean by mercenary? I'm just looking forward to getting out of here and I want heaven for my own peace and comfort. I want you to understand that heaven without the presence of God would not be heaven. Most of what makes heaven heaven is the fact that the Lamb is the light and the glory thereof. That He is there. And I believe, and this author made the point, that because the Old Testament had believers and and demonstrated believers focusing predominantly on the presence of God indicates that while we're in this life and even as we anticipate the next life of heaven, that our focus should be on cultivating a daily moment-by-moment consciousness and awareness and enjoyment of the presence of God. You think about Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden The thing that they forfeited was the walk with God in the cool of the evening. 
When Cain slew Abel, the Bible says that one of the marks of his rebellion was that he fled from the presence of the Lord. We admire the story of a man by the name of Enoch who walked with God and was not, for God took him. I've told you about the Bible college professor I had who quoted an old preacher that had influenced him and he likened it to this account that Enoch and the Lord were having their daily walk and one night the Lord said to Enoch, Enoch, we're closer to my house than yours. Why don't you just come on home with me tonight? I think about Abraham and the fact that the Bible testifies of him that he knew God as a friend, knows a friend and talked to him face to face. Moses, the same way. The Bible tells us of Noah that he walked with God. And even as we see Job giving us very early information about the resurrection life and about heaven, even as we hear Job talk about the next life, we find that the thing that he longed for when he got to heaven is this, I shall see God. Face to face I shall behold him. Far beyond the starry sky. We think about Jacob speaking of heaven as a place. He identified it as having gates. He called it the house of God in the middle part of the book of Genesis. And yet he wanted to get back to Bethel, the house of God, the place where he first knew God. And where he wrestled with God, he named it Peniel, literally the face of God. The highlights, the epic moments in the life of Old Testament believers was their experience of the presence of God. Joseph, it is said of him twice while he was in prison that the Lord was with him. Twice when he was in Potiphar's house, the Lord was with him. You find a conscious awareness in the life of Joseph that marked him off as the man that he was. In David, in his Psalms, we find him saying at the right hand of the Lord, there are pleasures forevermore. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. In Psalm 42, we find him like a deer or a heart panting after the water brook. So David's soul longed for God. And we find his soul without the presence of the Lord in Psalm 63 like a dry and thirsty land. The longing for the presence of the Lord. And Paul says in Philippians chapter number 4, we are to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, we are to let our moderation be known unto all men. Why? Understand, this is the guiding thought of these verses we've just read as our text, because the Lord is near. He could come at any moment, but until He comes as He will, in the end times, so to speak, His presence through the Spirit of God and the Word of God is right here with us until Jesus comes again. And there are results that that is to produce in our lives. I want you to understand this morning that the awareness of the presence of the Lord, that He is near, that He is at hand, is one of the believer's most powerful resources this side of heaven. The presence of God. And that author that I've been reading made the point that the basis of our perspective needs to be the enjoyment of the awareness of the presence of God. And that be the filter through which we even anticipate heaven. Because again, heaven without the Lord there isn't heaven. So what are some results? As I look at this passage of scripture, I notice first of all, that living in the awareness of the presence of the Lord, that he is near, is a catalyst for unity. 
among believers. I didn't read the first three verses, but notice verse number two. I beseech Iodius and beseech Syntyche, Paul addressing uh, these two ladies in the church at Philippi, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And one of the things that is a catalyst to unity among believers is the awareness that the Lord is here. Paul says to these ladies, be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, the goal is not my way over your way. The, the, the goal is what is the Lord's way? And we both should be striving towards that. He's present. He's here. Let's be getting his mind. Have you ever noticed, as I was thinking about this with the disciples, we criticize them, and rightly so, for their arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Twice! On the night of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And several other times, even before that. But did you ever notice that James and John, when they wanted to be the greatest, they sent Mama to do their asking for them? Almost as if they're like, you know, we really don't want to be the ones to bring that question to Jesus. Mama? He's going to have a soft part. You know, mamas are always for their boys. He's going to have a soft heart and a spot in his heart for mom. Do you ever notice that they argued about what they did? And they had their conflicts and their striving about who was going to be the greatest when they didn't think he was listening. Do you remember the instance when they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest and they were walking behind Jesus on the road? <laughs> and they didn't think one who was omniscient heard him. They got a little further down the road, and Jesus said, what were you guys talking about back there? I tried to illustrate it in my own mind. What it actually is like when believers are selfish and don't get along within the reality of the fact that the Lord is near. In the days following World War II, men like Audie Murphy and Desmond Doss were household names and faces. Have you ever heard the names before? Many of us have heard of Audie Murphy, who in February of 1945 won a Congressional Medal of Honor fighting in the European theater. Two months later, April of 1945, Desmond Doss, a conscientious objector who was a um, medic, at Hacksaw Ridge in the Battle of Okinawa, single-handedly saved the lives of 75 men and was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Okay? These men were household names and faces at the end of World War II. Now imagine that just after World War II, when everybody knew who Desmond Doss and Audie Murphy were, that two guys got in an argument in a grocery store parking lot about a parking space. And Audie Murphy or Desmond Doss walked up. I have a sneaking suspicion that that would have brought the argument about a parking spot to a very sudden halt. Because they were in the presence of one who had given them the liberty to even go grocery shopping. You get what I'm saying? And yet when believers... Do not get along. In the context of the reality of the fact that the Lord is near, 
We're in the presence of the one who shed his life's blood to purchase the church that some people use as a platform for propagating selfishness. You say, Pastor, do you know of anything going on? No. No. But I will say this. It happens, doesn't it? But when we live in the reality, the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. It becomes a catalyst for unity. Unity is pleasing to the Lord. And that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like that precious ointment, that perfume of that wonderful aroma that flowed down the beard and the garment of Aaron when he was anointed to be the high priest. It's a good smell when God's people get along. The Lord is near should be a catalyst for unity. The Lord is near. Number two, it should be a cause for rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And again, the context, the governing sentences, the Lord is at hand. Rejoice. The word rejoice, as I looked it up, is uh, the, one commentator said this, it's the actualization of freedom in Christ. In other words, it's the bringing into reality the public expression of the fact that I'm free. I'm free from the bondage of sin. I've been set free through the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens in regards to the circumstances of this life, nothing can take that freedom from sin and the condemnation of sin away. It is mine for good forever. Notice what Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. Remember, he's sitting in prison. Rejoice in the Lord. He's the changeless one. Circumstances may change, but Jesus never changes. Okay. And because of that, we can rejoice in Him. Also, we can rejoice because of the certainty of our future. I've said this before, and it was a help to me when I first read it in a book that I studied some months ago. And that is this, joy... Joy, now for the believer, in the midst of even difficult circumstances, is the legitimate borrowing from the certainty of the future back into today. Okay? What does that mean? Heaven is for sure. A glorified body is for sure. Okay? The rapture of the saints, the church, is for sure. The final victory of Jesus Christ over death is for sure. A new heaven and a new earth are for sure. Okay, there's no doubt about these things. And even in the midst of the changing circumstances of this life right now, rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in the future is the legitimate borrowing from the certainty of the future in order to strengthen me and give me perspective today. One commentator said of Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord, it is the believer's defiant nevertheless. But look at the economy. Rejoice in the Lord nevertheless. Look at my physical condition. Nevertheless, rejoice in the Lord. Look at my problems with what's going on in Washington, D.C. Rejoice in the Lord nevertheless. And vote. <laughs> <laughs> That's not in my notes, by the way. <laughs> okay. Rejoice in the Lord. 
not in circumstances. The, the grammar here, when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. He uses a future tense in the second statement. Rejoice in the Lord always. By the way, he's quoting Psalm 97, 11. In other words, he's obeying the command of the Bible that he had. Okay. But again, I say, Rejoice, And it's almost as if Paul is answering an unspoken or anticipated objection. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, as if somebody might say, but what about this situation? What about this situation? What about that scenario? What about that person? What about this event? Paul said, and again, I say rejoice. And he uses a future tense in the second half of the verse as if to say this. And again, I will say rejoice. In other words, nothing is going to change the mind. Why? Why can he say that? Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. It's a catalyst for unity. It's a cause for rejoicing. Thirdly, the Lord is near. And as I look at the text of Scripture, God's Word, notice verse 5, the first sentence of the verse, let your moderation be known unto all men. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is near, number three, it should give calm in the circumstances of life. The word moderation gives the idea of gentleness in Scripture, gives the idea of patience. As a matter of fact, the same word translated moderation here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 1, Paul uses it in this sentence. Listen to this. I beseech you in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. The gentleness of Christ. It's the same word as moderation here. When we think about moderation, we think about self-control. When we think about moderation, we think not about insisting on or taking over or having my rights. We think about moderating for the sake of others. Between commentators and even some ancient or older translations of Scripture, there are a number of synonyms here. William Tyndale, heard the name before. In his translation of the, of the New Testament preceding the King James Version, when he translated chapter 4, verse number 5, he said it this way, Let your softness be known unto all men. Now in the world of John Wayne, that word has negative connotations. But it's the idea of gentleness. One man translated the word sweet reasonableness. Let your sweet reasonableness be known unto how many men? All men. All men. Let it be known. It's the idea of experienced. Actually experienced. Not just academically processed, but actually experienced in interactions one with another. Let your gentleness, your sweet reasonableness... It's a person, one man said, who lives by the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. Let us not be those who insist on the spirit of the law when it relates to how we're treated, but the letter of the law when it relates to how others are treated. One man said it this way, moderation is the ability to be an individual who is known as someone who others know. He'll meet you halfway. He'll meet you halfway. Sweet reasonableness. 
can I say it this way? The term rude Christianity is a misnomer. Brash, bullying, boastful are direct contradictions to the word moderation. The word literally is the combination of two words that's translated moderation that, that carries with the idea of upon the likeness of or the similarity of. One man I read said that he believed that Paul coined the word because he couldn't find it in any other secular Greek, ancient Greek literature because it was a concept, the concept of this, this gentleness in a world of secular pagans was so foreign they didn't even have a word for it. But Paul coined it, this idea of upon the likeness of or after the image of, upon the image of who? It raises the question. The image of Jesus Christ. Be like Jesus. This my song. And so the awareness of, the acknowledgement of the fact that the Lord is near should bring calm in circumstances. Deference to fellow believers, gentleness in my relationship with them. Let rudeness be put away. Let brashness be put away. Let boastfulness and bullying be put away. They have no place in the life of a Christian. None. Fourthly, as we think about living in the awareness of the fact that the Lord is at hand, the Lord is near, it results in a catalyst for unity, a cause for rejoicing. That manifestation of the liberty that is mine in Jesus Christ, the freedom, it also results in giving me calm in circumstances. I don't have to insist on my way because I have a sovereign God who will give me exactly what I need. He knows. And He's a good Father. Number four, another result of living in the awareness of the presence of the Lord, that the Lord is near, the Lord is at hand, is, and we know this, verse number six, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. A fourth result of living in the awareness of the presence of God is that it is a good cure for worry. J. Oswald Sanders, the great missionary statesman of Canada, pastored, I believe, in Canada for years, J. Oswald Sanders said this, that, now get this, that worry is unconscious blasphemy. <laughs> it's blaspheming God, but not realizing you are. It's the same as by my attitude and actions of worry, saying, God, I don't think you're big enough or capable enough to take care of this situation you're dropping the ball. Now, which of us would ever say that to God's face? No, we wouldn't. That's why J. Oswald Sanders called it unconscious blasphemy. And yet, when we live in the reality that the Lord is near, worry is cured. Someone has called worry practical atheism. We never say, I don't believe in the existence of God, but when we worry, we live like it. I found an interesting and a convicting poem. Said the robin to the sparrow, 
I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so, said the sparrow to the robin. Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. This week, twice, Emmeline has sent us FaceTime videos or either videos or we FaceTime with her and little Carolyn Wren. And a Carolyn Wren, our granddaughters, hit this amazing stage where everything is a wide open, wide eyed smile. And I mean, it's like the smile is so big, if her face stretches anymore, she's not going to look like herself. It's just, but it's, I'm telling you, if I need a, an encouraging moment, I just FaceTime and say, let me see the baby. But as I was looking at my granddaughter and her likenesses to her mother, I was taken back in time to when Emmeline was a little toddler. And a fond memory that demonstrates how we can cure worry by trust in the presence of the Father. When Emmeline was just beginning to walk, we had gone to a church activity out in the Midwest. It was a nighttime uh, activity at the farm of one of the families in the church. A big bonfire had been built. And all night long, the farm dog, I believe it was a German shepherd or a, a retriever of some kind, had been running around trying to get attention, looking up at people. And uh, I had held closely to Emmeline as a toddler with the fire nearby and the dark and the dog down. And I had noticed that the dog wasn't around. And so for a moment, I put uh, Emmeline was squirming, wanting down to walk and try out her new legs, you know. And I put her down and she began to toddle. And then I got involved in conversation, was all the while watching Emmeline out of my peripheral. And I noticed as she was toddling away like this, that in the shadows, just at the line where the firelight died into darkness or faded into darkness, I noticed that that family dog who'd been deprived of any fellowship on its level all night long saw finally someone on his level. And out of the shadows he came with a beeline straight to Emmeline. Emmeline was oblivious, just toddling along. And all of a sudden, the muzzle of that dog stuck right in her face. I had seen the dog coming. And in anticipating that meeting, I had begun to move towards Emmeline. And I'll never forget Emmeline's immediate reaction. As soon as that dog's muzzle stuck in her face, she threw up her hands all in one motion and turned, anticipating that Daddy would be there to snatch her up. Living in the awareness of the presence of the Lord gives you the opportunity to respond like that. To just immediately cast yourself into the care of the Father. And living in the reality that the Lord is near, that the Lord's hand is a cure for worry. Number four, or five, pardon me. Another result of living in the reality of the presence of the Lord, and I'll just briefly mention this one and we'll conclude. The Lord is at hand, the Lord is near, and that truth not only is a catalyst for unity, a cause for rejoicing, a calm in all the circumstances of life, not only does it give itself as a cure for worry, but it is also a call to prayer. He is there. He's here. He is available for the prayer of the child of God. In everything, Paul says, verse number 6 
in the context of the Lord is near, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. One commentator said this, that there's nothing too great for his power and nothing too small for his tender care. Call to prayer. And then when I do respond in prayer and relinquish worry, the Bible says the peace of God, the wholeness of God, which passeth understanding, which is better than understanding, shall keep, it'll garrison. Philippi had a garrison of Roman soldiers to protect the city, to keep the peace. And Paul says here that when we pray and we surrender up our worries living in the awareness of the presence of the Lord, that the peace of God, which is better than any understanding, shall keep your hearts, garrison, protect your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Your heart, the center of what you do, all that you do. Your mind, the center of your reasoning faculties. And all of it through the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the fact that the Lord is near, the Lord is at hand, is a call to prayer. I was challenged by preparation as it relates to prayer one man said this when you pray remember three things about God number one remember his love and because he loves you he desires only what is best for you when you pray secondly remember his wisdom why because that means that he knows what is best for you in his wisdom thirdly Remember his sovereignty because that demonstrates that he has the power to do and accomplish what is best for you. It's possible to desire the best for someone but not know how to accomplish it or have the power to accomplish it. It's, po it's possible to know what someone needs and yet not have the ability to bring it about. But our God, because he is a God of love, because he's a God of wisdom and because he is our sovereign God. He desires what is best for us. He knows what is best for us. And he has the ability to bring about what is best for us. Amen. Every family with multiple children has one. Has one what? A child that all the other kids know is much better at getting requests fulfilled from dad and mom. You with me? My son is nodding his head. Okay. And I can always tell when one particular child has walked in the room, they got this innocent smile on their face. Yeah. And they'll, they'll begin with something like, Dad, we were talking. <laughs> but the other kids, they have these conferences. You ever know if they have these? It's coming. It, maybe it's already happened. These conferences, and they're like, okay, now we all know that so-and-so <laughs> is better at asking than I am. Just the way, you know. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession. <laughs> he is the accepted one. And because of him, we're accepted. 
And do you know that the fact, the reality, the fact that the Lord is near, (laughs) he's right here, is a call to prayer. And we have the assurance of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ being the beloved of the Father who sits at the right hand and because of him we have access. By the way, you got to have Jesus as Savior before you have access. He began his intercession for a world of sinners 2,000 years ago when he hung on a cross. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that he made intercession for the transgressors. He began his call for your soul (laughs) and his pleading on your behalf as he hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them, (laughs) for they know not what they do. And even as religious, moral men crucified Jesus, if any indication should be clear that righteousness, man-made righteousness and morality and religion don't get you into heaven, it's because it was righteous men that crucified Jesus. Religious men crucified Jesus. But Jesus began his intercession for lost souls 2,000 years ago, for religious lost souls, for moral lost souls. For good lost souls. He began his intercession on a cross. And after his death, burial, and resurrection, he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And one of his chiefest works right now is that he can ever liveth. He continually makes intercession for the believer at the right hand of the Father. Hey, I'm not being mercenary when I say this, but because of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ as the beloved Son of the Father, and you and I being in the family because of Jesus, you and I have an inside access to the very throne of the universe. And the fact that the Lord is near, that He's right here, it calls us to prayer. And we got the favorite Son right here with us. So let's go to the Father in His name. The presence of the Lord, He is here. Stories told years ago of a young wife and mother that passed away and left behind a grieving young husband and a little girl of six or seven years of age. You can imagine the grief was almost unbearable. The father, in order to be the comfort that he could be, let his little six to seven year old daughter come sleep in the bed with him in the place where his wife used to sleep. Many of their nights, those first few weeks and months, they would fall off to sleep on tear soaked pillows, as you can imagine. One night as they laid there, the father had been working to comfort the little girl. And they'd turned off the light and he had rolled over with his face to the off side of the bed. And then from the darkness, he heard a little voice, still choking back tears, say, Daddy, is your face towards me? It wasn't. And so the father rolled over and the little girl could feel the bed shaking in the dark as daddy rolled over and he said, okay, sweetheart, now my face is towards you. She said, okay, I can go to sleep now since your face is towards me. The face of the Lord is always toward us. He is at hand. He is near. 
Why should I feel discouraged? Sing it with me. <laughs> Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And because of that, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow, and I know the Lord is at hand. Hallelujah. Father, I pray that the power of this truth, the reality of it, would sink into our souls. As we leave this place, go out into a world that is contrary to our Lord, a system that despises Him, and yet a world that desperately needs Him. And I pray that our joy, that our calm, our moderation, our rejoicing would all shine a bright light in this dark world. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, the piano's